Welcome to the Go Well podcast. This is Kate Mercer and today I'm talking with Michael Lockwood about living with treatment-resistant depression and electroconvulsive therapy, otherwise known as ECT. Michael has a Master of Creative Industries from Queensland University of Technology and a professional career that spans across senior executive government positions. With a lived experience of mental illness, Michael was diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression 10 years ago. Today, Michael manages his illness with a healthy lifestyle, medication and ECT. He spends his spare time nurturing his creative passions, which include outback photography and videography. Welcome to the Go Well program, Michael Lockwood. Thank you, Kate. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's really uh, fantastic to, uh, to receive your email uh, reaching out to us. Uh, there's a lot I want to talk to you about today. But firstly, uh, for our listeners, could you just talk a little bit about you because you're living your life with a, a mental illness now, re- uh, recently diagnosed. But can you just uh, paint a bit more of a picture about you, I guess, your life for us? It's okay. Um, well, I turned 65 in August. I don't know if it's something I'm looking forward to or something I'm thankful that I've made it this far. But if that happens, I'll be 65 soon. Going back, I guess, I, I started work um, in areas that I had a strong ideological belief in. So I was working in youth homelessness and general homelessness. And I spent about 20 years working in the non-government sector, doing things that I thought would make the world a better place, I guess. I then moved into government in a kind of a senior policy role. And over a span of a bit more than 10 years, I worked my way up to becoming um, an executive working in um, a state government department, then going across to a large local government where I was an executive there. And, and I think I made a mistake by going to the local government because while the, you know, the money's good and it strokes your ego and all the rest, I never felt that I was having the type of positive impact that was important to me. I think that comes into why 10 years ago or so I had a, I guess, a nervous breakdown is one way of putting it, or a diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. In a nutshell, I was married in my late 20s and my marriage was pretty good. Worked for a long time until I started sinking into the depths of depression and then I think that's when you trigger off the types of things where whatever's bad in the relationship suddenly starts emerging. And, you know, we got divorced quite amicably, but but the marriage had ended. I've got two sons. They're both fantastic young men. They're both really doing stuff they believe in. They're in relationships with wonderful women who amazingly actually get on with, with my boys parents um and so and i think and i think that's pretty when i look back that's been probably the greatest achievement of my life is is despite everything that went wrong um turning out as a father that has two sons that, that like him like him does that answer your question kate yeah that gives us a good good overview thank you so much i mean i've um i've got a brother actually i've got three brothers in my own family and one of them is uh diagnosed schizophrenic so I guess when you get a diagnosis uh, or even pre-diagnosis, there are lots of things they consider out there, including, I think, you know, they look at family and your uh, the genetic side of things, I guess. So did you, so let's, let's cut to that now when you were diagnosed, which was about 10 years ago, so when you were about 55, is that right? And how did they come to that diagnosis and what led up to all of that sort of scenario? Oh. It probably wasn't hard because I, as I said, I had a nervous breakdown. I mm. ended up just leaving my, not able to go to work, so I quit work. 
would spend the best part of the day just sitting in a chair in the in the back lounge room, staring off into the distance. So, you know, it was pretty obvious to everyone that there was something wrong with me. Mm. In terms of genetic predisposition, uh, my mother had um, depression, um, not major depressive disorder, but certainly one of those ongoing mood disorders. Um, and there'd been cousins of mine who had committed suicide, so that was also a risk factor. Um, okay. But for me, it was really just, um, you know, <laughs> what's happening in your life, and it was pretty yeah. obvious that, Yep. So I had a major, major depression happening. Yeah. So it was like life events that really pushed you pushed you into that, that situation. Yeah, there was probably a, there was probably a disposition towards towards that, but it was what had gone on and what had gone wrong in my life that um, mm. that meant I couldn't it meant I had nowhere to go but down. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about then um, getting diagnosed and what sorts of uh how how different professions helped you can you actually sort of travel us through your experience of being diagnosed and different people that you saw and all those sorts of things sure um well first thing was my gp and i think gps are grossly underrated for their importance in being primary healthcare providers um my gp saw me had a diagnosis, we talked about it a bit, went home, tried some antidepressants that she'd given me. Um, normally they'd give you about a uh, four to six week window to see if they have any effect and they had absolutely no effect. So I went back and got a referral to a psychiatrist and I was a patient of that psychiatrist for about five years. And together we tried, um, well, she started off with some more potent antidepressants, they didn't work. Um, went tried a couple of different combinations of that and then went on to, um, it's called California Rocket Fuel. It's, um, it was the first combination of antidepressants which were commonly prescribed and that was potassium and Effexor. That kind of, and what would happen is things would, would work for a while and then they would just fade out. Um, like I actually got to a point where I was well enough to go back into consulting and I had contacted all my contacts and was in, making $2,000 a day doing consulting for different organisations. And then I had a relapse. And in a period of one month, I lost my three contracts and was back at the bottom of the deep hole. Gosh. So working, working with my psychiatrist, and what I hadn't learned yet was about, also about managing my, my pace and, and rationing myself so that I wasn't spread too thin. But, but so I worked with data for, for about five years and that, it has been getting worse and worse. There's treatment resistance. So um, if something did work, it would typically only work for three months, maybe six months. But most of the things I tried um, didn't really work. And, and it was a pretty bleak time in my mental health, to be honest. Yeah. Must have been. That must have been horrific. I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine what what you would go through. So, um yeah, that's interesting. The name of that antidepressant, Californian rocket fuel. <laughs> God, it's incredible. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to um, trying to get you to talk about what your experience must have been like for because I know there are going to be people listening in who are living themselves with mental health, uh, probably maybe in a similar situation, who might really uh, get value from listening to this interview. So. Um, what else would you be saying about what you went through uh, during well, those times? 
well, I guess, I mean, kind of the predictable things. I lost my job, my career, my marriage, my house. Um, and but fortunately, I, I mean, I was fortunate in that I had reasonable superannuation that I could draw on early and I had savings which I could draw on so I could manage to go for a period of time um, without working. That kind of runs out soon, I think. I don't know, probably not too soon, but anyway, that'll run out. But I think the first thing is, is, is the practical day-to-day thing, sort of how you, go, how you live your life. Mm. Um, that becomes really challenging. So, um, and that's just it's something you just got to deal with. It, it's, it's, it's the reality of the way. The other thing is, I don't think there's such a thing as depression because I think all of us with a mental illness, however it's described, have very different types of experiences, but also share lots of other things in common. But my experience of major depressive disorder isn't going to be the same as somebody else. I mean, I, for instance, suffer really bad insomnia as when I kind of reached the poorer parts of my mental health and can go for months without sleeping properly and indeed what kind of have my choice of two different medications to help me sleep at night and sometimes I'll even take both. But um, so I guess in terms of other people, it's you just got to trust in your healthcare provider, mm. whether it's a GP or a psychiatrist. I don't think psychologists much help for people with, um, with the kind of biologically based um, disorder that I've got. I'm not saying they're not helpful, but I don't think they would have been much help to me and I had that discussion with a GPMI psychiatrist, you know, I said, well, you can go if you want, but there's really nothing to talk through because your, middle, your coping skills are actually pretty good and you, you know, your approach to life is pretty good. Mm-hmm. What you've got wrong is um, the chemicals in your brain have gone crazy and, and they're being disrupted in there and they, and they will never come. I mean, I will never be cured of this or mm-hmm. I can be successfully treated or not. So with regard to your lifestyle, do you find, I mean, we'll go to your diagnosis soon, but... Just with regard to your everyday life, as you said, do you find anything like exercising or going for walks and things like that, do you find those things helpful at all? Yeah, um, they are. I mean, well, the first thing is, one of the first things I did probably, I don't know, seven or eight years ago was just stop drinking alcohol because it's a depressant and, and it plays havoc with antidepressants. And also at the same time as I was doing that, it made it easier for me more conscious about my eating habits. So one of the side effects of one of the drugs I'm on or a couple of the drugs I'm on is obesity. So I've got to be really careful with my eating. And, and so, so, so alcohol and food was two parts of my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, going for a walk in the morning, I, what I build into my day is an hour, an hour and a half at a coffee shop where I have a couple of cups of coffee and read the paper online or check my emails or look into Facebook or just sit there and listen to music staring out into the, um, into the distance. Uh, and so that so that builds in an automatic um, half hour of walking, which I then will you know, also increase on other days by going to the local shops, which are mm. um, ten and a half minutes. So, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing outstanding, but there's just the small things I do now that I'm conscious I need to do them. So just mm. part of life. Does that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's good. That's that's awesome. Thank you for sharing everything. So. You were diagnosed with treatment-resistant therapy 10 years ago? Treatment-resistant major depressive disorder. So right. It's not at least severe and it's treatment-resistant, which means most of the things that psychiatrists try don't work. And that's been 10 years. And I spent the first five years, I guess, just rolling through different combinations of antidepressants. And I still, and I still actually um, 
since I've started um, ECT, I've been also using different packages of um, antidepressants just just to manage my um, mental health. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to go to, I guess, the most interesting part for most people because, and this is amazing. So you're you're currently well. Tell us about electroconvulsive therapy. So most people know this as ECT. Uh, so yeah. you're, are you, can you tell us all about that and how, how you, that's being incorporated to help you manage your, your mental health condition? Yeah, sure. Um, I started ECT about five years ago. Um, I, first of all, I went into the psychiatric hospital and tried what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is where they put this super uh, magnet on your skull at a particular spot and then shoot magnetic waves into your brain for half an hour and you every day for four weeks. It didn't do anything for me. So I went and tried ECT and and I was I'd been in a really bad place and I'd been in hospital already for one month with transcranial magnetic stimulation and then with another month with ECT. But within about three or four sessions of ECT, my mood suddenly started lifting and it was like I was becoming vaguely human again. And in terms of, I, I know everyone's got this, well, not everyone, I know a lot of people have a stereotypical image of ECT as, you know, someone lying strapped down, chewing on a bone or something while they, some mad psychiatrist pumps electricity into your head. Um, but it's not actually like that. It's like, it's pretty, pretty easy. You want me to go through what happens? Look, absolutely, I really do. Because uh, actually, I was talking to a friend uh, about it, and I guess a lot of us uh, have this imagery in our minds of how they used to do it because it, it was out, it was in the movies all the time, as you said. That yeah. you know, people strapped down and screaming, and it's just we've all got that imagery. So please, yeah, please do explain. Okay, well, I do it as an inpatient. Some people can do it as an outpatient; they just come in for the ECT and then go home later. So, but I do it as an inpatient. Um, you kind of wake up in the morning, get dressed, have a shower, get dressed. Um, a nurse comes around, takes you around to where the treatment room is and you sit down there, get your blood pressure taken, pulse, temperature, that type of stuff. And then not too long later, you're into the room where they put you on a trolley and there's only maybe two people in there. And then you get wheeled through to where the ECT is performed and you chat to the nursing staff and chat to the psychiatrist and the anesthetist and everyone's quite cheerful and they start putting um, little electrodes all over your chest and legs and arms and head because they want to record all um, everything that goes on. Mm -hmm. And then put a couple of electrodes on the front of my forehead and that's where the electricity will go through into. But normally before they get too far into that, the anesthetist has injected me with a muscle relaxant so that when I have the spasm that is required under an ECT, um, that I won't break any bones or hurt myself. Mm -hmm. And then within a general anesthesia. So um, I kind of drift off into dream world and wake up 10 minutes later in recovery. Um, I'd be confused about where I am and what I'm doing, but you know, with it enough to know that I'm in hospital and I just had ECT. Mm -hmm. um, and then go out into another room where you have breakfast because you couldn't have breakfast beforehand because you're um, ill by mouth because of the anesthesia. And 
most most of us are pretty silent at that stage because you're still recovering. Mm. I mean, it's the anesthesia that you're recovering from more than the, the ECT. Mm. Um, and, and the only the only downsides um, is there can be some short-term memory loss mm. uh, that that happens, mm. and there can also be some longer-term memory loss. I um, attempted suicide late last year, and then went into hospital and had 12 sessions of ECT. I'd gone for a couple of months of that and, and then went back for a fortnightly for a while and then monthly and, and now I'm on six months, six weeks. Um, and that was quite an intensive amount of ECT, which was, you know, it was treating me. To, and I'm, you know, just thousand percent better. But the frequency of that ECT is it has meant that I've lost a few memories of what happened in the last quarter of 2020. Although talking to someone, um, she said, if you're going to lose memory of any particular year, then you know, late 2020 would probably be years of death. <laughs> That's one of the upsides. Well, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, it's, I guess, um, just an incredible process. At least it, yeah, that sounds like it's a lot more comfortable, I guess. How do they, but I get, so have they sort of said to you, I guess the main thing to be telling everybody listening in, of course, is, very particularly that this is what's happening for you and every individual yeah. is is different. So do they they basically sounds like they're just gotta keep working with you and keep adjusting things. Is that what's happening? Yeah, look I mean the ACT is probably the most successful psychiatric medical treatment there is. Drugs are kind of okay but not great. Counseling doesn't do a lot if you've got a really serious condition. ECT has, you know, in the high 50s up to, some people argue, close to 80% success rate. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are and I don't want to be quoted on them, but, but it works more often than it fails. Um, and if it works, then there's a good chance that it will keep working as well. And it's not a cure, it's a treatment. And, and as part of a treatment, it's also me as a person with um, a mental illness. It's about me becoming better and better at identifying when I need to go in and say, I need help now. <laughs> like yes. the combination of drugs I'm on, the ECT from the last thing that faded away. Um, and, and then the, the, they're really good at the hospital, you know, you, if you're an existing patient, you can get in and they'll work out a way to get you in and, and get you treated. Um, and last year when I didn't do that, I suffered the consequences of, I was actually organising a major photography competition I'm engaged in. Um, and I kind of caught up in that and I should have gone in and said, no, I've got a major problem happening here and, and got some early intervention from ECT. Yeah, that's a big thing in itself, given that you've got a mental health condition to manage it yourself, to know the signs when you do need to get help. But I thought the other thing I wanted to say to you as well is generally speaking with ECT, it's, they're using it only for more severe conditions and uh, treatment resistant therapy as well, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's look, it's not it's not the starting point for most treatment. Yeah, uh, and and it does have risk. You get a general anaesthesia uh, with no brain damage. You know, all the evidence says there's no brain damage, but there is some short-term memory loss. And like I said, you can get longer-term memory loss for, for periods. You get, you know, like what I went through. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time. Depression brings with it memory loss anyway. So, you know, to what extent was an acute depressive episode destroying my memories? Was it the depression or the ECT 
you know, vacating my mind over that period of time. And my, I guess it was actually both, um, but they both played a role. And the point is, it was a bad time, bad place to let myself get into. And I needed, and I've become better at it, I needed to identify that I need to be done when yeah, things aren't working. Yeah. Uh, so if you were to, before before you made a decision and agreed to have the ECT, did you do your own research and are there any websites that you would suggest if people wanted to look into it further that you would suggest going to? Obviously I did some, well, I'm kind of, you know, intellectually orientated. So I do read a lot and I do background research, but ignore the chat rooms. I mean, because there always be someone who had a bad experience. And that's, that's, that's sad and it's true that it happens. You can't generalise from one bad experience that therefore the whole thing is wrecked. You know? mm-hmm. so, I mean, and any, any more than you can say, oh, it's got to work because Michael, you know, it works for Michael. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all different. And what will work for me may not work for somebody else. So it might, you know, mm-hmm. that's just something you've got to, in a sense, be prepared to try out. And I'd read the, the websites like Beyond Blue, um, the other government, you know, state governments, Australian government health website, anything that's got an authoritative peer review scientific base to it, rather than mm. chat rooms where everyone who's a bit annoyed with somebody else or some of the treatment they've had just rants about how terrible it is. Um, I mean, they can rant, but I don't think it helps us to believe what they're saying. Mm. Yeah, very good advice. All right. Well, look, we're going to be, we're sort of heading to running out of time. I'm just so grateful mm-hmm. to you coming on the show today, uh, Michael. Um, can you tell us about your photography now and how that's helping your, has helped you with your mental health, managing your condition and also this, this competition out of the midst? Sure. Well, I guess that one of the things I did about five years ago was I decided I needed to do things that mean because I thought I'd go back to uni. And my son's a lawyer, so I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. And did a year's worth of law, and I was okay, but didn't enjoy it. I did a master's in creative industry. And one of the subjects I did it was towards the end. In fact, my last year was photography. And and for me, like, it's really hard for me to explain what's going on in my head using words. Like, I can't even explain to myself what goes on in my head using words. But using, the, um, using a narrative that's visual, it actually acts as a whole lot of um, symbols, a whole lot of meanings, a whole lot of emotions um, that take us a little bit further. So for me, it was a way of explaining to myself what was going on. Um, and then, because I like to change the world a little bit, I started up a photo competition called Out From The Mist, which you can find on Facebook by searching Out From The Mist, and it'll take you to our webpage. Um, and what I wanted to do there was provide people with a mental illness with a space where they could enter an image or a short movie under one minute and potentially win prizes, but maybe even more than that, um, provide a venue for them to express what it is they've got to say about their mental illness. Because one of the things that happens to people with mental illness, and like most groups who are marginalised, is we tend to be silent. I mean, the way that people with mental illness are described in the media from She's crazy, psycho, she's loopy, she's off. I mean, there's a whole lot of terms that are derogatory that describe us. If you kill someone or if you're a politician who's done something wrong, then you know, mental illness is fine. And the majority of people with mental illness are just pretty ordinary people. But having a competition where we could argue and present a different perspective, or multiple perspectives, 
on mental illness was, was really important to me. And, and I think it's been really successful today. We've had, this is the third year, we had over, we had 120, 140 photographs in each of the two years. And, um, and that's not bad for a starting place, but we've got aims to make it bigger and better this year, not just for the sake of size, but just to open up to a broader discussion about what is mental illness. Yeah, does that make sense, Kate? Oh, absolutely makes sense. I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I do that as well with my magazine too, actually. In fact, thank you so much. Uh, in our September, November magazine, you're going to be contributing an article yeah. um, about your story and also about the competition and some of the uh, photographs, which is going to be absolutely fabulous. What's the website that people can go to to enter the competition, uh, Michael? It's called outfromthemist.com. Fabulous. It's a dot-com, not a dot-com-au because it's international. Yeah, awesome. That's fantastic. All right, well, look, once again, thank you so much for being on the program. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you think would be useful or helpful for people uh, who have got a mental health condition? And I, the lovely thing I like about talking to you is about it's different what, what you're talking about, so from your experience. Um, I think hope, I mean... Hope and honesty, they're, they're the things that, when things really go bad, I mean, it's too ill, it's too easy to do harm to yourself when things are really bad. Um, but you've also got to be honest about where you're at. And so I think hope and honesty are the two things that carry me through my darker moments, but also inspire me in my um, stronger times, like where I'm at at the moment. So, yeah, that's where I, that's where I think it's important for mental health, probably yeah. for everything. Beautiful. Okay. But hope and honesty. Lovely. That's a lovely way to finish. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show. Thank you, Kate, for having me. It's been, it's been great talking to you. Thank you.